This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 26. And as you make your way to the 26th chapter of Job, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that this book is centered around the trials and the troubles of a man named Job. And as we learned back in the beginning of this book, Job was in fact a man of integrity who feared God and shunned evil. Not only that, but we also learned about the day when the integrity of Job's faith was put to the test, and this happened after the Lord allowed a fallen angel known as Satan to attack the family, the flocks, and the flesh of his servant. As a result, Job's sons and daughters, they all perished in a horrific windstorm. On the same day, his oxen, his donkeys, and, and, and uh, you know, all of his animals were stolen by a band of raiders. And then fire fell from the sky and burned up his sheep as well as many of his servants. Finally, Job's flesh was covered with painful boils from the sole of his foot to, uh, to, to, to the crown of his head. And, and in the midst of these terrible trials, Job's wife was so distraught by the loss of her children that she simply encouraged Job to curse God and die. And if that wasn't bad enough, three of Job's friends traveled from afar in order to come and encourage him. Rather than comforting him, though, they took their turns presenting a series of unfounded allegations and false accusations against Job. And, you know, over the past seven months, we've been considering the conversation that's occurred amongst these four men. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Job, he's now presenting the opening statement for his final defense. And while the content of his final response here is contained within the pages of six chapters, well, he begins his defense with a focus on the majesty and the magnificence of our creator. And as we make our way through this chapter tonight, it's my hope that we'll all gain a greater perspective of the God who created the heavens and the heavens of heaven. Well, with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of this incredible book as we turn our attention now to Job chapter 26. If you would look with me there, we'll, we'll begin our study at verse 1. Here we learn that Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job. He's responding to his friends with six rhetorical questions. The first question is found there in verse 2. Well, Job presented this question in, in, in this way. He says, how have you helped him who is without power? Or in other words, Job was informing his friends here that their counsel was no help at all. They were insisting that they were helping Job, who at this point in time is powerless. And Job is now saying, how? How have you helped me? How have you helped him who is without power? No doubt Job felt powerless before his friends had arrived, and, and yet he still felt just as powerless at the end of this debate. So he asks him here, how have you helped the powerless? Uh, of course, it's a rhetorical question. He's not really looking for a response. Job then elaborates on this first rhetorical question with a second, and it's found there in the second half of verse 2. There he asks, how have you saved the arm 
that has no strength. In other words, Job here was assuring his friends that they had failed to save him from the trials that were plaguing him. In, in the midst of all of their counsel and all of their false accusations, nothing in Job's life had changed. His children were still deceased. His livestock was still stolen. His boils still oozing. Yeah, simply put, Job was assuring his friends that their counsel changed nothing. They had not helped him. They had not strengthened him. And they had not changed him. They didn't even change his mind regarding his own guilt before God. Job was still defending his innocence before the Lord. And, and, and so being that they had, they had failed to change his mind, he's basically asking next, you know, where, where's the wisdom that you, you guys claimed to uh, have brought to this house? Look with me there at verse 3 again. He says, how have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? I like the way the scholars who created the New Living Translation render this verse. They put it like this. How have you enlightened my stupidity? What wise advice you have offered? In other words, Job was assuring his friends that their counsel really wasn't based on wisdom. They, they hadn't come and helped a stupid man to become wise. No, instead, uh, they just brought a litany of false accusations that failed to address the real issue at hand. And, and the real issue in Job's mind, well, it was still off base as well, because he's still wondering, why is God punishing me in the midst of my integrity, when in fact, God wasn't punishing him, but rather, God was allowing him to be tested. Now, with all this being the case, Job poses then two more rhetorical questions, which are found here in verse 4. There he asks, to whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? In other words, Job was asking his friends to reveal the source of their wisdom. He's saying, hey, where, where did you get your wisdom from? The reason for this is due to the fact that their allegations were incorrect. Wherever they were getting their information from, they were, they were getting information from someone who didn't know what they were talking about. And, and therefore, the counsel that they were offering didn't really apply to Job's situation. As we consider these six rhetorical questions, you know, Job here simply used these questions to discount and dismiss the false accusations of his friends. And while this is not to suggest that Job disagreed with everything they said, I'll remind you as we went through these chapters, many things that these guys said were correct, just not applicable. They, they said a lot of true things. They gave a lot of great you know, points of counsel, but, but again, it didn't apply to Job's situation. And so in the context of Job's situation, their counsel was all wrong. And with that, we have to understand that it, it, it's so easy for us to present people with incorrect counsel, and especially when we fail to take the time to properly understand the situation that we're attempting to address. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 18. It's verse 13. There he declares, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Listen, before we rush in to present our wise counsel, uh, we ought to make sure that we understand the issue at hand. And as we listen to the matter that we're preparing to address, well, we ought to prayerfully ask the Spirit of God for the wisdom that we need. We ought to ask God to speak through us so that we can provide the people that we love with the wise counsel that they need. At the same time, if you find yourself surrounded by counselors like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, 
Well, you might take a page from the life of Job by learning how to present good rhetorical questions. You know, some good rhetorical questions using the Socratic method even, you know, using questions to help bring people to a conclusion, that's oftentimes better than just hitting a, an argument head on. Listen, you, you know, if, if we would learn how to present some good questions, we see Jesus using this method as well. Oftentimes people would come to him with questions and he would respond to them with another question. Rather than arguing with those who don't really know what they're talking about, we might do better to present good questions, which will help them to stop and think through the issues at hand. Not only that, but we would also do well to remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, as we set out to provide others with counsel or as we consider the counsel that we're being offered, it's just important to remember that the respectful fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. And those who want to walk in the wisdom of the Lord ought to make sure that we remember that we're simply finite beings who are easily confused. We are finite beings who don't always have the the full picture. And, And in contrast to this, our creator is the infinite God who is never confused about anything. Our creator is the infinite God who knows the end from the beginning. And so rather than leaning on our own understanding, we ought to humbly seek the wisdom of our creator so that then we can receive the direction and the instruction that we need. It's for this reason that Job redirects this conversation from the inadequacies of his friends and their counsel. He shifts the attention now to the majesty of our creator. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 26, beginning at verse 5. Here Job goes on to declare this. He says, The dead tremble, those under the waters, and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's responding to the statement that Bildad made back in chapter 25. Now I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 25, it's verse 2. There Bildad declares dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Dominion and fear belong to God and, and, and he makes peace in his high places. And, and, and listen, without debate, Bildad is correct here. Our creator has established his perfect peace in the highest places of heaven. And in response to this, Job goes on to assure his friends that uh, that's not all, uh, but that those who are in Sheol are also subject to his authority. Just to be clear, that word Sheol, it's found there in verse 6. It's translated from a Hebrew word which was used in reference to hell. And, and it's used in reference to the abode of those who are waiting for the final judgment. And while many people present hell as a place where Satan is sitting on a throne and ruling over the souls of the wicked as he tells the demons to go and torture you know, people who are there in the fire. And Listen, I can assure you, Satan is not in Sheol. Satan is not in Sheol. No, instead he's roaming about on the earth looking for those he can devour. And so all the cartoons and all the television shows and movies that that put Satan in hell right now or Satan in Sheol, it's just not the case at all. Satan is roaming about the earth looking for those he can destroy. And, And he's come to kill and steal and destroy, and we ought to be aware of this fact. As for the souls who are in Sheol right now, 
Listen, I, I can assure you, they are also subject to our creator. I like the way that King David explains it in the 139th Psalm. It's verses 7 through 10 where David declares this, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Christian, listen, the spirit of our creator exists without limits. And the reason why is because he is the infinite I am. He is the infinite one. He is the one who infinitely exists, infinitely. And and so listen, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the authority of the one who created hell extends to the souls who are there in Sheol. And while it's true that the souls of the unrepentant will continue to exist in eternal separation from our creator, well, it's also true that Sheol is uncovered before the presence of our creator. And this place of destruction is subject to the authority of the Lord. Further proof of my point can be found in Revelation chapter 20, where the apostle John describes the day when the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And here in these verses, we learned about this day of judgment when death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Sheol will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And, and, and it's there in the lake of fire where every unrepentant unbeliever will receive the punishment that they deserve for every single sin they ever committed. And, and this will continue for the rest of eternity. It's in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, where we learn that the smoke of their torment ascends how long? Forever and ever. The smoke of their torment ascends forever. Now, how can you have the smoke of torment ascending forever and ever if torment doesn't continue forever and ever? The very smoke of the torment that you know, ascends before God you know, continues forever and ever. The smoke is evidence that the torment is continuing forever and ever. As long as the sheep of the Lord are with him in heaven is the same amount of time that the unrepentant unbelievers will be tormented in hell, which is forever and ever. That being the case, Job was right on point when he declared, here in verse 6, Sheol is naked before him and destruction has no covering. Or in other words, this destruction will never end. It will never end. It's an ongoing state of destruction where these people who were created to worship God 
will never again be used for the purpose for which they were created. Those who will not repent of their sins will suffer in everlasting destruction as Sheol is cast into the lake of fire forevermore. Thankfully for us, sinners can easily escape this everlasting destruction. Sinners can easily escape this everlasting destruction. It's as simple as repenting of our sins and then resting by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's there on the cross where he received the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. Reject this to your own peril. And it's there forevermore where where the unrepentant unbeliever will continue to remember every opportunity they had to repent and receive Jesus Christ. I think that'll be the worst torment of all, knowing that you could have easily escaped by faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that those who reject Jesus will end up suffering in everlasting torment. We ought to be looking for every opportunity to share the gospel of grace with those who are still living under the condemnation of the law. Well, with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Job describes the majesty of our almighty God here in our text tonight. And so, if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 26. I want to focus your attention there at verse 7. Here, Job goes on to declare this. He says, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the the boundary of the light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's reminding his friends now about the sovereign authority that our creator has over his creation. And while it's true that those who are in Sheol are subject to the sovereign authority of the Lord, well it's also true that those who are here on earth are also living under the sovereign authority of our creator. And yes, listen, even the atheists who think that our universe was created, you know, when nothing exploded and then slowly became everything. That's right, that's, that's, that's the core of atheism. Nothing exploded and became everything. And as they deny God, they are using the very breath that God has given them to deny their creator. Now, listen, as we consider this theory of existence here, I want, I want you to trust me when I tell you that nothing can do nothing. Nothing can do nothing. If, if you're waiting for nothing to do something, it, it, it's going to be a while. Because nothing can do nothing. Therefore, those who believe that nothing caused a big bang that resulted in everything are, well, let's just say they're being irrational. And listen, the infinite universe theory that presents an alternative you know, to the big bang theory, uh, the people who hold on to this are equally confused about the nature of infinity. 
those who believe that the universe has existed for all infinity, uh, they're also being irrational. And the same holds true for those who believe in an infinite number of multiverses, a la Spider-Man, you know, and, and these sorts of things. You know, Marvel's loving this storyline with all the multiverses and all the different characters, you know, being repeated and all these. And, and they're, you know, yeah, basically brainwashing your kids. But uh, listen... There, 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 is, there can't be an infinite number of multiverses because there's not an infinite number of anythings. It's impossible. You, you can't continue counting to infinity. Infinity is not a bunch of somethings, but rather it's, it's, a, it's a quality of our, of our creator's existence. Listen, if, if our universe is infinite... Or if there's an infinite number of multiverses that are also infinite, then there must also be an infinite number of moments in the past, you know, and if there's an infinite number of moments that have happened in the past, then we would never actually arrive at today. You can't traverse an infinite. And since we can't find a beginning of the infinite moments that occurred in the past, we would never arrive at this moment today. Therefore, because we have arrived at today, then the infinite universe or the infinite multiverses, it's all just a bunch of you know, irrational attempts at trying to dismiss God. It's impossible to traverse an infinite. With that being the case, you know, we're really left with one rational option, which is this, that there must be an infinite being who is the uncaused creator. And as such, he must be the one who created both time and space. As the infinite uncaused creator, he is infinite and and therefore sits outside of time, and therefore the time in which we exist must be a creation of the infinite creator. I like the way that Job wraps it up here in in, in verse 7. There again, he informs us that God is the one who stretches out the north over empty space. Here's this infinite God who is stretching out our finite universe over nothing, over empty space. The Lord is the creator who created the heavens and the heavens of heaven. And the Lord created our atmosphere, which includes the troposphere and the stratosphere and the mesosphere and the thermosphere and the exosphere and... He's the creator of all those spheres. Not only that, but it's there in the second half of verse 7 where Job tells us that he hangs the earth on nothing. Incredible. How do you do that? I don't know. And when we get to the day when, when the Lord shows up and begins to question Job, he's going to ask Job the same thing. How do I do it? And Job's going to say, I don't know. And he's going to put his hand over his mouth and sit in silence. But here we see that God is the one who hangs the earth on nothing. How does gravity work? I don't know. But what we do know based on this verse is that the earth is floating in the empty regions of the universe that we call outer space. And while I realize that there are still some who believe that the earth is resting upon some sort of set of pillars that are below a flat planet or something like this, this is just nothing more than a faulty interpretation of Scripture. I'll remind you, it was back in Job chapter 9. That's where Job refers to the pillars of the earth. The pillars of the earth. We talked about that back in Job chapter 9. 
But you might also like to know that it's in the 75th Psalm where the psalmist also refers to the pillars of the earth. And then again in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, we learn that the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the, the world upon them. Now in light of these verses, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there were ancient rabbis who took these verses way too literally. As a result, they ended up creating a cosmological model that included a flat earth which rests upon literal pillars that supposedly support the earth from underneath. Now listen, I'm not here to poke fun of those ancient rabbis who you know, wanted to take the Bible literally, and so they took something that was allegorical in nature, and then they interpreted it very literally. It's just improper hermeneutics. And, you know, at this point in time, we ought to be able to look at this and go, yeah, I mean, they were wrong. They, they were trying to interpret the Bible literally, but, you know, they didn't have spaceships and stuff like that. Now we have high-resolution images from outer space, and so you would think that this issue would be finally settled. But then comes along the conspiracy theorists who come along and say, well, NASA means deception, and therefore, you know, they, they admitted that all of their pictures of the Earth are, are composite what does, that, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? That, so, so satellites took a bunch of pictures of the earth because they're too close to take the full picture. And so then, you know, artists came along and took all the little com- pictures and put them together as a, as a composite, complete picture. And, and, and so therefore the earth is flat. <laughs> is that the argument here? Yep, that's the argument. There are those who think that NASA is a Hebrew word, which means deception, which I could get into all that and say... No, it's not. Nasha is the word that means deception. Nasa means journey, and that's a whole nother issue altogether. Listen, we have enough technology now to know with all certainty that we live on a spherical planet. And yet there are Christians who continue to insist that, you know, we live on a flat earth that's perched upon pillars and, and, and you know, that this is, this is the cosmological model that we're supposed to embrace. Sadly, what these people fail to realize is that, you know, this is, this is just not true. Uh, and at the same time, it's important to understand that not only were there ancient rabbis who taught this, but there were many ancient civilizations that believed similar things. As a matter of fact, the ancient Greeks, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, even the Chinese believed that the earth was either a flat disk or a square plane surrounded by water. And, and, and so then why would the leaders of NASA you know, set out to deceive us by tricking us into believing in a spherical planet when in fact it's really flat and, 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 uh, and not spherical? And there are Christians who point at this and say, well, NASA's doing this Because if people found out it's a flat earth, then they would immediately believe in God. If they found out that, you know, if if NASA were to to let us all know what the earth really looks like, that it's flat and on pillars, you know, that people would immediately rush to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, what about the Greeks, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Chinese? They all believe in a flat earth. They didn't embrace the God of the Old Testament. I should also point out that even in the world today, there are atheists and agnostics who have embraced this belief that the earth is flat. And and in their mind, it was aliens. They did it. (laughs) Yep. 
And, and so there's flat earthers today who are atheists and agnostics who believe in a flat earth, and yet they didn't rush to some sort of Christian conversion. That being the case, you know, the, the argument that the evidence of a flat earth would immediately turn people into Christians. Listen, those who believe that the evidence of a flat earth results in more Christian conversion seem a bit confused about the nature of unbelief and our propensity towards confirmation bias. Remember, there were many Jews there in the first century who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and walked away as unbelievers. They continued rejecting him as the promised redeemer, though they saw the proof and the evidence. So let's not fall into this idea that, well, if NASA really told us the truth about the shape of the earth, then there would be all these Christian conversions. No, that's not the case at all. Well, setting all of this aside for maybe another study, hopefully soon, I want to get back to Job's cosmological model here, and let's take a closer look at verse 8. Here he declares, He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. And, and I, want to, I want to consider here how Job is describing these clouds that the Lord uses to cover his throne. And in the context of this passage, I'm guessing that he's referring to the heavens of heaven as the throne of the Lord. And I, and I think that the Lord explains it best in Isaiah chapter 66, where he declares, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. And in light of this, we can see how the Lord created the hydrologic cycle to cover the atmosphere of the earth in this sort of way uh, that uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, provides us, you know, not only with rain, uh, which, is a, which is a wonderful thing, uh, but, but it also uh, you know, helps us to see how he breaks up the atmosphere from outer space and these sorts of things. And, and then we should also notice the way that Job describes the horizon of the earth. He goes on there in verse 10 and declares this, he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Now, those who still subscribe to the flat earth theory will insist that the horizon is flat. You know, if you, if you say, well, I was up in a plane and I, it looked, you know, like the earth was curved and no, it's not, it's flat. You know, they'll insist that, that there is no curvature to the earth. And yet here, Job is telling us that it's the Lord who drew a circular horizon. So if you're up in a plane and, and you see a circular horizon, yeah, God made that. God made that. Not only that, but he also informs us here that the horizon, which is circular, extends to the boundary of light and darkness. Now compare this to the flat earthers who would have us to believe that the horizon ends with an ice wall that we call Antarctica, which allegedly surrounds the flat earth to keep the water in, you know. That's what what I've been told, that, you know, flat earth theory here you know, the, the, the entire disk is surrounded by Antarctica and, and there's no, you know, real evidence of this because the armies of the world will not let you go and see it. Ah. Our army can't even protect the southern border of America. And the armies of the world are going to work together to stop all of us from going and seeing the ice wall at the edges of the earth? Come on. I would be happy to examine the evidence of some sort of massive ice wall boundary that surrounds the entire flat earth. I just have yet to see one shred of evidence that that we live on a flat earth. And and I've seen a lot of people who have taken flights across Antarctica and and, uh, it's there, just like in the pictures. 
According to Job, the Lord drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters, and the boundary of this circular horizon is the immaterial essence of light and darkness. In other words, the, the boundary doesn't end with an ice wall, but rather the circular horizon disappears from light into darkness. We call that outer space, right? The flat earth theory uh, you know, also includes this idea that we're dwelling under a physical canopy, and, and according to Job, that also is an unbiblical concept. And to prove my point, let's con- continue to consider Job's cosmology here. Look with me there, verse 11. Here, Job goes on to declare, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. Now, here in these verses, we find Job referring to these pillars of heaven. According to many ancient rabbis, the, the world was not only flat and round, and it was not, not only seated upon pillars underneath this disk, but it was also covered uh, by uh, some sort of great solid dome uh, that they call the firmament, which was allegedly held up by mountainous pillars, better known as the pillars of heaven. Or in other words, they're pillars from the earth that hold up this, this dome or this firmament. Now again, I'm not going to fault the ancient rabbis for attempting to present a literal interpretation of the text. I, I believe that we should present as literal an interpretation as we can until we come upon passages that are allegorical. You don't want a literal interpretation of an allegorical text. When Jesus says, hey, if your right eye sins against you, pluck it out, don't run home and grab the knife. It shouldn't be taken literally. Your right hand sins against you, cut it off. Well, we'd all be walking around with no right hand. And, and you know, God help us to, to cut the left one off. You know, it's just hard to do it without the right hand, right? But these guys, they were trying to arrive at some sort of literal interpretation of these sorts of texts. But again, the, these texts uh, are more allegorical than literal. It would be a mistake for us to think that their interpretation was correct because it was literal and old. It's ancient, you know, so therefore it must be right. Well, not necessarily there are many ancient heresies. And just because they're old doesn't mean that we should embrace them today. Please trust me when I tell you that a literal interpretation of an allegory typically produces false doctrines. To further make my case, let's continue to consider the cosmology that Job here is presenting. And if you would look with me again in Job chapter 26, we'll pick up at verse 13. Here Job declares, but his spirit, by his spirit he adorned the heavens His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, uh, who can understand? Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's describing the way in which the Spirit of God has adorned the heavens. According to Jesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, The Hebrew word which was rendered adorned, we find it there in verse 13, that word speaks of the brightness and the beauty of the splendid stars and the constellations. And according to those who subscribe to the flat earth theory, the stars in the sky are actually embedded in a dome that they call the firmament. And if that's the case, then why is it that we can't see the northern star from the southern hemisphere? If we live on a, on a flat disk, then the southern hemisphere would actually be on the same side as the northern hemisphere. We would all be sitting on a flat disk. But why is it that you can't see the northern star from the southern hemisphere if we're all 
sitting on a flat disk. The northern star ought to be the northern star for everyone on the planet, right? If there is no southern hemisphere, then everybody should just be able to look up at night and see the northern star. Not only that, but the constellations that we see in the northern sky, well, they appear to be upside down and flipped left to right when viewed from the southern hemisphere. How would you explain this on a flat surface? It makes no sense. There's no good evidence for us to believe that we're living on a flat earth. There's just a twisting of the scriptures uh, that is based on a very literal interpretation of allegorical verses. Clearly, the stars and, and the constellations aren't embedded in some sort of you know, physical dome that is fixed over us like some sort of snow globe. You know, it's not like every Christmas, God up in heaven is shaking us and looking at the snowfall. And Nope. The stars and the constellations aren't embedded in this dome that's fixed to some sort of pillars that we call Antarctica. And I like the way that Job explained it back in chapter 9. It's back there in Job 9, verses 8 through 10. There he declares, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, And the chambers of the south, he does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. According to Job here, the Lord didn't create some sort of fixed dome with an embedded light show in the dome that we think think are stars or something. No, instead, he's actually created the expanding heavens. He says he, he alone spreads out the heavens. He's created these expanding heavens, which include and contain the constellations that Job lists as the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, as well as the constellations that he says are in the chambers of the south. That's the sky that's seen from the southern hemisphere. There are also some who believe that the fleeing serpent found here in Job chapter 26 is a reference to Draco, uh, which is the dragon constellation. It's actually one of the largest constellations in the sky. And this, this dragon constellation is a circumpolar constellation which contains several famous deep sky objects that include the Cat's Eye Nebula, the Spindle Galaxy, and the Tadpole Galaxy. We can't say for certain, but Job may have been referring to the Draco constellation here in Job 26. And here he describes the way in which the Lord's hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And, and at the same time, you know, uh, it's, it's possible that maybe something happened in, in this constellation back in this day and age that uh, would have appeared to be like the hand of God uh, distorting or, 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 or doing something to this constellation. We can't say for sure. But, but, you know, this may have been some sort of stellar foreshadowing as well uh, of the way that Satan is going to be cast down into the lake of fire. Maybe God did something with this dragon constellation that points to the day when Satan will be cast uh, into uh, the lake of fire. But but again, you know, that's all speculation. With all this in mind, though, we must not fail to notice the way that Job ends this chapter. And so if you would look with me there at verse 14, here he declares, Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him but the thunder of his power, who can understand? As we consider the creation of the Lord, from the clouds of our own atmosphere to the constellations in the cosmos, you know, Job here takes all of this into consideration as he then points out that these are the mere edges of his ways. 
Those who look up in the sky and think there's a dome here that we're all contained within, Job says, no, no, no. When we look up into the sky, this is just, just, just a scratch on the surface of what God has done. Just a scratch on the surface. It was back in Job 9, verse 10, where he says he does great things past finding out. There's, there's things happening out uh, in, in the universe that we have yet to find out. And listen, we can explore space for the next several thousand years and never exhaust the limits of this finite creation, let alone what God has in store for us beyond this plane of existence. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's verse 9 where he declares this, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him the highest, loftiest thought that you've ever had of God and heaven doesn't even come close to what God has in store for those who trust in Jesus Christ. As awesome as you think heaven is going to be, I can assure you it will be awesomer. It's going to be better than we can even imagine. In light of these things, we'd all do well to simply humble ourselves before the King of Kings. Without debate, God is the creator who has sovereign authority over every created thing. And this is the point that Job is making here in the beginning of his final defense. He's saying, hey, God is sovereign. And he has sovereign authority over the entire earth. He has sovereign authority over the entire sky. He has sovereign authority over heaven and the heavens of heaven. And he has sovereign authority over the depths of hell. He has sovereign authority over everything and everyone because he's the creator. We are the creation. Therefore, the best decision that any person could ever make is to simply submit ourselves to his sovereign authority and let him call the shots in our lives. Let's allow him to lead us. Let's allow the spirit of God to move us forward into his perfect will. And in this way, we will live a life that is pleasing to our creator and our savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.